This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. On this week's podcast, we have an incredibly inspirational guest who has been pivotal in the mental health campaigning community. Community? Is that the, yeah, is that the word? So. Yeah. <laughs> it is Poppy Jammon, who is the CEO of Mental Health First Aid England, which you set up. Yes, yeah, so I'm one of the founders of Mental Health First Aid England. We are a training organisation, which most people, a lot of people will know, but we started in Department of Health back in 2007. So over 10 years? Yes, yeah, over 10 years ago. And at the time, as part of the Department of Health, there was an organisation called the National Institute for Mental Health England, NIMI. And our job was to look at developing the mental health system. And one of the things that we were looking at at the time was good quality, evidence-based training for Mm -hmm. anybody and everybody. Because mental health literacy or actually having a sound understanding of mental health was really limited. Mm -hmm. So we went out. And we looked for training around the world and we found that Scotland was delivering this thing called Mental Health First Aid. So a few of us, um, I wasn't involved at that stage, a few people from NIMI went over, checked it out. And we then brought Mental Health First Aid to England as a Department of Health programme. And then in 2008, I was asked to set it up as a social enterprise, so transition it from a project that was within NIMI into a organization and we'd made a decision to set it up as a community interest company and and here you are we've got one of the most amazing mental health training organizations ever well I want to ask because I know well we were just talking before we started recording but obviously the question I ask everyone which everyone anyone who's listened to this will know is how are you really right now because you've got some big news Poppy haven't you yeah yeah so when um this meeting with you came about I thought this is really symbolic you know I've just landed this massive news around for me massive I'm moving on from mental health first aid England as its CEO and I handed in my resignation to our board only last week wow I know um fresh uh, yeah really fresh and it's a decision that's been coming for the last couple of years so I've been planning it so it's not something when you build an organization like mental health first aid and it's something that's so close to my heart and lots of people's hearts it's really important to make sure that it's in the right place to move on to whatever it's going to become. Um, So how am I? Transitioning is how I am. And I was saying to you earlier, you know, 
that's got lots of feelings attached to it. Yeah, it's sort of a bit up and down at the moment. You often don't know how, in situations like this, I find you often don't know, you won't actually know how you're actually feeling until like a year's time. Like when big things happen in your life, yeah. be them job moves, house moves, yeah. deaths, you know, any sort of big changes, divorce. I think it's really hard to know how you actually feel when you're in it. Absolutely. And I think what you've just done is highlighted four or five key pinch points in life. You know, buying a house, getting married, Mm. job move, all of those things are, when you look at them, they're positive things usually, but they come with massive stresses stresses because it's change and human beings take time to adapt adapt to change. So on the one hand, I'm really excited and I'm like, wow, this is going to be really good. So in my mind, I've got 10 years for another big thing to do, if you Mm -hmm. like, and after that, I mean, I had children quite young, so I'm expected to be a grandmother in the next 10 years. I've been brought up with a mum who has never told me her age. And she says it's rude to ask a woman her age. But I'm like, why? Why is that like, rude? I don't, I don't know what these outdated... So how old are you, Poppy? Do you know what? I'm Bangladeshi and we just ask direct questions about everything so how old are you does not offend me at all Um, I'm 41 years old 41 young spring chicken I'm 41 years young and um, how old were you when you had your kid so my eldest daughter's 21 wow and then I've got a stepson who's 20 and then I've got two 17 year olds once another stepson and then my daughter as well so all our kids we've got a blended family but yeah, I was a mother at 20 with my daughter being 21 so I'm expecting in the next 10 years to probably become a grandmother and I'd love to feel like actually I got the whole work thing out of my system by Mm. then because I'm really passionate about what I do and purpose is really important to me so I feel like one of the reasons that sort of making a decision to move from Mehmet Mental Health First Aid is that it's such a thriving organisation. We've trained I think 300,000 mental health first aiders in England in the last 10 years Back in 2009, we were training about 10,000 people a year. Now we're averaging seven to 10,000 people a month. Which shows you how oh. far we've come yeah. with, with thanks to people like you. But also I think it's the community, the mental health community that have really got behind this because we recognise that mental health education is a critical part of the jigsaw. We can raise awareness and that's really important to address the stigma but actually if we don't feel confident on what is the language how do we talk about it how do we recognize early signs for ourselves and in others and do that in a classroom style in an education setting so that we're learning skills how do we move the generations from actually feeling this is something that we should be doing but how and Mm -hmm. and it's that changing people's behaviors and hearts and minds is what mental health first aid really is about and I'm just chuffed to bits with what we've managed to achieve and as a business as well you know we're a social enterprise and a couple of years ago we were um, named as one of the I think we came number ninth um, in fastest growing women-led business SMEs in the UK and then last year the FT recognized us as in the top 500, I think it is, of fastest growing SMEs in Europe. And those achievements are really important that we can do business, but do it with purpose and with a really good, strong ethical foundation. And mm-hmm. so I'm chuffed about that as well. Going back to how are you, it's 
mixed emotions. I'm really struggling with, God, I'm moving on and this is such a great organisation and I'm going to miss the purpose and I'm going to miss the people a lot with, wow, what am I going to do next? Polly, I want to talk about your story. Yeah. You know, we touched on a bit having a child at 20 and, you know, how your experiences directly affected what you decided to do. Talk to me a bit about your childhood and growing up. You sort of mentioned that you were from a Bangladeshi, yeah. had a Bangladeshi background. So you sort of second generation. So I'm third generation Bangladeshi. Okay. So I describe myself as British Bangladeshi, mm-hmm. a proud British Bangladeshi woman. I grew up in Portsmouth, third generation, because my granddad was recruited as part of East India Company to work in the uh, Merchant Navy. Mm-hmm. And that's the connection with Portsmouth. So that's how we ended up at Portsmouth. My dad came over to join my granddad probably in his early teens. Mm -hmm. And back then, the mindset of our communities was very much about coming abroad to work and provide for families um, who were usually back home Mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. And then my dad went back to Bangladesh, married my mom, and I was born. And I came over to England, I think, when I was about 18 months Mm -hmm. old. So very young. And I grew up in Portsmouth. And one of the things I often say is, you know, in terms of poverty, deprivation, racism, gender issues, cultural issues, I kind of had it all really. You've experienced it all. all. So, you know, we were poor, we were really hard up, dad run businesses. And financially, it was always a challenge. And I think that it was the same for lots of migrated families, you know, growing a family here, and then also looking after a family abroad. And those were some of the tensions that we grew up with. And then I suppose personally, there was the whole sort of, I call it living out of the metaphorical suitcase, because dad never fully felt like this was home. For him, it felt like he was working away from home. We grew up with this sort of, this isn't really home, this is where we're visiting. and so you of not really belonging. Yeah, mm. and I think that had a quite a big impact really on me as a young person because on the one hand I felt very, all my friends were other English, white English girls mm. in Portsmouth and so I felt very British and pompy girl from that perspective, you know, hitching up your skirt when you go to school and all of those things, you know. (laughs) And then also academically, I was very able, you know, I was an all-A student, GCSE results were A's and A stars. So academically, I was really sort of very ambitious and wanted a career. And then at home, there was sort of this other sort of expectation of being a homemaker and being a potentially sort of a good mother for the future, a good wife. So I felt like I was growing up with all of these different expectations Mm. and not really a very clear identity, I think. And I don't think that's unique to me. I think a lot of women who come from minority backgrounds have those sort of dilemmas around gender expectations of how you are supposed to do within your culture and your faith and, and then also being out in the world and wanting to be like a, you know, fitting in with what, you wanted to do so I think I was quite conflicted probably yeah I'm really interested in this because as a middle class white privileged 
human being. I've just read the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which like (laughs) blew my mind. That's on my reading list. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Because we all think, I, I would not call myself racist. But the argument is that we are actually, the systems in this country are built on racism and unconsciously mm. there is bias, you know, bias against. And I'm really interested about how that affects your mental health. Because I was talking to a friend today, um, she went to see Rennie Edo Lodge, who wrote the book, Talking. And uh, she's white, my friend. And she said it... She was sitting there and she was one of the very few white people in the audience. And she realised that must be what people in minorities feel like all the time. And I'm really interested, you know, doing more work with BAME and all of that and how that affects you mentally. Because I I know as someone who's experienced mental illness and felt less than and felt apart Mm. and felt different, we can all feel that Mm. regardless of the colour of our skin or our religious background or anything. But I'm really interested in how that affects you growing up and mentally because it must have an effect yeah um sorry that was like a really like splurge of a question it's a great question and i think if you look at the statistics you can see the number of people from black and minority ethnic communities who are in the mental health systems and then you have to ask questions about why that is is it because the system is set up to actually diagnose black african man differently to you, you know, and probably, yeah, there probably are some biases there and how we interpret how people are expressing themselves. So if you're standing there being aggressive and if a black guy was standing there being mm. aggressive, we're going to interpret that differently. Absolutely yeah? differently, yeah. And that difference interpretation is going to come from our cultural frame of reference. Mm-hmm. So if I'm another black guy, I'm going to actually go, okay, this is how I'm interpreting it. But if I'm an Asian, do you know what I mean? So so even our ways of interpreting the thing are different. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's that element of it. But I think sort of coming back to me, how did racism affect me? It made me feel like I needed to get out of Portsmouth. It made me feel like, actually, it probably triggered the activist in me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not somebody that has gone on lots of marches and been an activist in a sense of being out there and actually lobbying etc but what I felt my activism could be was educating through change really Mm -hmm. and getting into organizations and asking the right questions and seeing how I could help navigate Mm -hmm. the system. Can you just talk I mean growing up in Portsmouth in the 80s presumably. I'll give you some examples. Yeah Yeah, I think that's really helpful for people to be able to hear. Absolutely so I'll give you a couple of examples. I went to City of Portsmouth Girls School in Portsmouth and at the time in my year I think I was probably one of 10 BME people. Maybe. BAME, I call them black, black and minority ethnic. BME, that's yes, what we're saying. No, 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 I think you're right. I think I'm old. BM, my t- B- black and I was black and written. minority ethnic BAME. Yeah. BAME or BME. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I was in the minority community and I remember we were doing PE once and I had leggings on instead of a PE skirt, which was the uniform at the time. And I had leggings on because I'm from the Muslim community and that's what my parents had asked that I'd be my um, PE attire. And I was asked by one of the teachers to step out of a photograph because they were putting the school brochure together and they wanted the right representation of the (gasps) uniform. Now, you're looking at me going, oh... At the time, I just sort of went, oh, okay okay, then. Yeah, that's, that's fine, of course. But inside... 
I knew that wasn't right because mm. it hurts. But being in the room at the time, that was just normal. There's no way any teacher would do that now, mm. I hope, and get away with it. But that was sort of very normal practice. And then there's another example, of, and there's loads of these ones. There was one time my mum and I were walking, coming home from the library, and we got eggs and ketchup chucked at us just because people thought it was funny. And actually, there's another example, which is, I think, quite important. You know, so we'd just moved into a new house and a brick with a note was chucked in through our... And it was literally the evening of moving into this house. And a brick was chucked in through the window and it, was, it had a note on it with some racist nonsense on there. And we were really scared because we'd just moved to this mm. new neighbourhood and we were the only Asian family in the neighbourhood at the time. And what was this about? But I remember because of language issues, I was the eldest, I'm my eldest of three siblings. I've got two younger brothers who are amazing. So I was the person that had to call the police. Right. Because um, well, so dad was at work. So dad was working in restaurants and takeaways. So he was already at work and it was just me mum and the boys and my auntie at home and I was the oldest person that spoke fluent English so this was sort of 13 maybe mm-hmm. so here I am at 13 essentially a child dealing with racism violence so criminal matter, yeah. criminal matter yeah. being the translator around how my mum might have been feeling and you know what it's like on many of your shows we've talked about self-care and how you absorb the stuff that's going around you. So I think it probably impacted my mental well-being much more than I would have realised. Mm. So when I was eventually diagnosed with postnatal, I don't really think it was postnatal. Mm. I think it was probably, it surfaced at that point because there was a lot of medical tension. You know what it's like, you had a baby, yeah, you're yeah, having yeah, checks yeah, yeah. every blooming week and about something else. And people pick up on it. But I reckon my experiences through childhood of growing up in a working class family in environments which were quite challenging probably had an effect going through life and actually all sort of kicked off after having a baby. But the other side of it, Bryony, is it's made me incredibly... um, We are the product of our experiences Mm -hmm. and... The outcome that it's had for me is I'm incredibly driven. I'm incredibly goal-orientated. I'm incredibly ambitious about doing good in the world. And those elements of my personality have surfaced because of some of those experiences. You know, and I've named one teacher who behaved highly inappropriately and probably wasn't even thinking herself mm-hmm. at the time. It's that unconscious bias on a different level back mm-hmm. in 20 years ago. But... There were also loads of teachers who were absolutely brilliant and who were like, you can do anything you want. I got put forward for head girl in my last year. And I remember saying to the teacher at the time, oh, I don't know that I can do that. And I remember, I think she was a science teacher. She might have been a maths teacher. She was very forthright and just sort of went, of course you can do that. What, does your mum spoon feed you? And I just thought, no, she doesn't. Of course I could do this. So I think there's... And did you... Did oh, you, God, yeah. I was, I was a head girl. At, of course, at, of course. Oh, yeah, I love that. that I just, yeah, of course I was, Bryony. Yeah. 
Of course. I'm like, all right, I wasn't. <laughs> I was never head girl. Well, you know, like I said, we're a product of our experience. I know. But at the time, I was like, you know what, Poppy? It really upsets me to hear that, to hear those experiences, because it moves me. I feel a bit teary because I think that all this stuff just happens and it's still happening, you know, and the small ways in which people... I don't know, like the small ways that we can all... Like those people throwing eggs and ketchup at you. They're products of their own environment. And, you know, these things are passed down through generations. And, you know, you have to feel sorry for those incredibly prejudiced, racist people leading lives that are that ignorant. And that's not in any way a defence of their behaviour at all, by the way. But the thought of you just kind of really hits me there and mm. as we're a podcast no one can see where there is <laughs> it's, but it's my pointing chest. at our chest everyone <laughs> like the cruelty of people simply because of people being quote unquote different yeah. or other I obviously have no idea what it is like to experience racism. I don't believe that racism can go the other way. I don't think white people can experience racism because, you know, a definition of racism is really prejudice plus power. Do you know mm. what I mean? And there are just not enough people yeah. of colour in positions of power for that to be the case. Yeah. What it does resonate with me on is the thought of feeling that thing that I think everyone who has had a mental illness yeah. will experience is that feeling of feeling alone, yeah. feeling afraid afraid you know what I mean but made to feel like a freak I grew up in the 80s and I grew up in a white community I didn't see it but to think that that was just going on fucking everywhere anyway (laughs) it breaks my heart yeah I I think what it does as well I think what you're what I'm hearing as well is that the connection between discrimination of any kind and whether that's discriminated and made to feel like a lesser person because you're experiencing mental health issues made to feel like a lesser person because you look different, made to feel like a lesser person because you're a woman. There's a thread that goes through all discrimination, isn't it? And that's Mm. essentially pain. That's human suffering that we choose to inflict on each other. Mm. And it's that choose bit that I get pretty pissed off about. It's because we can all choose something different. Different, And I guess that's why education to me is so important, is that if we have an educational open conversation with each other and it changes our mindset and, more importantly, our hearts, then we've moved one step closer Mm. towards someone choosing to do something different. And I love it when you have a conversation and people's light bulbs go on. And I guess that's why I'm not an activist that I've chosen not to campaign and lobby and... I've chosen to educate. So my activism is Mm. education. Let's have conversations. I'll sit down and have a conversation with anybody about any of this stuff. And it's not about winning and it's not about arguing who's right and wrong. It's just about having a conversation Mm. to explore what you think and what I think. Mm. And let's see where that takes us. I'm not in any way comparing my experiences of mental illness to your experiences of racism, just to be clear. And also what I guess pisses me off is that I'm even having to have this conversation. Mm. So I feel almost like, is it offensive that I'm having this conversation with you? But I think it's a really important one that we haven't touched on on this podcast. You know, like I feel a bit, if I look at all the people we've had on, because it's a podcast and it's oral, for me it was about getting a variety of experience of mental illness. And then I looked 
conversation and thought, my God, we haven't actually had that many people, you know, so we've had a few, but I keep meeting people who say to me, like, I really want to hear someone on the podcast whose experience of mental health has been through the black and minority ethnic community. And I think it's really important to be talking about it. No, and I'm not at all offended by actually having this conversation because, you know, I'm more than my race and I'm more than my mental health experience and I'm more than a mother. And I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm I'm very comfortable. We're all lots of different things. Yeah, we're just, we're, you know, we're human and we're, we're interesting and we're not any one thing. The other reason I'm quite comfortable with having this conversation is that we need to have more people talking openly about this topic so that we reignite the fire under some of the issues that perhaps we're not dealing with. And, you know, politically, society's in a very difficult place. And that's partly probably because we thought we'd dealt with it. We stopped having the conversations. <laughs> we stopped having the conversations. Yeah. And I think with something that's got the level of history that race has, it's probably another few generations, isn't it, before Mm. we get there. So you and I have a responsibility to keep (laughs) having those conversations. So it's Mm. great that we're doing that. I think the other thing to say about sort of mental health, if I sort of go back to my story a bit. So when I did eventually have my diagnosis of postnatal depression, and like I said, I don't think it was that. I think it was a whole load of other stuff before then. But luckily... It surfaced at that point and I managed to get the right help. What was really interesting is finding the help. So I remember trying to get some literature that was in Bengali so that I could pass that to my family members so that they could understand what was going on for me. And I know there's loads of information now, but back then there was just nothing. Mm. There was like everything was in English, everything was medicalised, everything was very much in the illness space there was nothing in the wellness space then you had someone and I guess I'm again won't be alone in this where you're going through a mental health issue and you're now having to translate what's happening to you with a level of sensibility can you imagine no, that? Can't. Like in your no. lowest moments, no, right? It's the fucking last thing you want to be doing. No, I don't want to have to explain this to you, Mum. Yeah. I mean, I guess to a certain extent, sometimes with mental illness, we all have to do a little bit of like mental illness for dummies. Like yeah. sometimes I think there is an element of that that goes, that has to go on. But no, I can imagine that's not what you need. Yeah. And, you know, Bryony, at that time, there really wasn't even like the word depression. There wasn't an alternative word in the Bengali language for really? it, and that's quite common. What is, as well. what, what is the word for well, it? Well, I now? think the word that's used now is, is pronounced sort of manushik, which basically means human issues. It okay. translates sort of human well-being. But what the Bangladeshi community in this country have done, they've adopted the word depression. Okay. And anxiety. So now there's a load of stuff around it. But I think that was one of my other big challenges. And then my first therapist was just so culturally illiterate, uneducated. It just didn't work. So the first Is therapy that, sessions, yeah. it just didn't I work. I can imagine that, you know, you need to have a, an understanding of how the families and the systems and the... Yeah. So I remember sitting in the first therapy session, having to do what I was doing at home with my family, having to educate my my therapist around. So I might say something like, oh, well, you know, I'm expected to, I don't know, I'm going to make this up because I can't remember. It was 20 years ago, but I might have been talking about my role that was expected at home, you know, so... I'm doing this for my in-laws and I'm doing that for my parents. And actually, she'd just look at me blank like, why are you doing that? And you know they're not supposed to be judgmental, but you could just read her body language that she just wasn't understanding the position I was in as a Bangladeshi woman 
with a young child because the cultural differences between her and I were so massive. So you spend your whole time having to explain. Yeah. That must become... That was really hard. So tired. Yeah, I think that was one of the most challenging factors at that point in time. Apart from having, you know, meltdowns and tears and not being able to cope with motherhood. So apart from the, you know, the depression in itself, <laughs> yeah. postnatal depression, yeah. which is in itself yeah. fucking awful. Yeah. Pardon my French. Yeah. Pardon my Bengali. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but like, was it Bengal? Bengal- Bengalis. That's hilarious. <laughs> That in itself is something, you know, like that in itself is horrific without having to add all the admin onto it. Yes, yeah, I really like that, the admin and the translating. It was just wearing. So, you know, that feeling of loneliness and nobody gets you that you, I know you know very well. It just got amplified because there was a responsibility on me to, first of all, have a conversation with people about what was going on for me, then explain that it's actually okay because lots of people have it and it's treatable, Mm -hmm. and then deal with people's reaction to that. So the first therapist, I only did like two or three sessions and just thought, I'm I'm exhausted at the I'm exhausted for the wrong reasons after this. So that was quite interesting. And then I think what I did was actually, I, for a period of time, I think I withdrew into myself. And then, you know, I just sort of went, actually, this is all too much. I can't, I need to just rein back in and, and sort of shut down a little bit to just focus on dealing with it. And my outlet, interestingly, was work. Mm-hmm. My big agenda is workplace mental health. And I just think that's an area that I do a lot of my work, spend a lot of my time on. And what we often hear is how bad work is really bad for you, particularly your mental health, and how work can quite often not be conducive to mental well-being if you're in the wrong job or if the wrong stresses are put on you, etc. But one of the things that I found really helpful in my life was work has been really good for me. It's always been part of my mm-hmm. recovery. And I guess I feel very lucky that I've worked in the mental health space, so I've been surrounded by people that get it and understand it and we've been able to work together on the initiatives that we have done. I need to have a purpose and I need to have a job and I recognise that back in my 20s that helped me go, okay, here's a place that I can feel normal. Tell me though, because anyone listening who's, who may have gone through a depression, how did you make the leap from new mother suffering from PND? What advice would you give to someone for that transition how do you get into it so my journey going back to growing up as incredibly poor I think one of my drivers in life which I didn't really consciously consider it until lots of therapy and coaching at much older age was that I was driven not to be poor money doesn't really mean that much to me so I'm not driven by making lots of money but I'm very driven by not being poor and I think that came out of I associated poverty with racism with all the stuff that I experienced in my childhood and I was very clear when I had children that I wanted to give them a very different life Mm -hmm. and 
in order for that life to be different, financial freedom was really, really important to me. So when my daughter was three weeks old, I went for an interview. And you know when your breast milk starts the cycle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had like a beige top on, right? (laughs) And there was these two guys that were interviewing me and I could suddenly feel like Mm. this. And I had milk coming in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had all these pads and I could suddenly feel this little dark patch coming up. I got the job. You got the job. <laughs> I Amazing. got the job. That's the worst feeling. Yeah. Well, one, no, it's not the worst feeling. It's quite obviously. embarrassing. But it's when you feel like, as a woman, our bodies can be unfair to us. Yeah. So I went back at three weeks, got an interview. Wow. I got a job, and I think I was very clear that I needed to actually not be poor. <laughs> and so I've worked through my whole parenting journey, and for majority of that, I've worked full time. Mm. There was a couple of bits of advice that friends who were mothers of older children that had given me at the time, and they said to me, Poppy, don't go part-time because we went part-time. We've got the labels that are attached to women that work part-time. And also, I end up doing a full-time job anyway. Yeah, in three days. Yeah, in three days. (laughs) And being paid half half the amount. So that was a bit of advice that a couple of women friends with older children gave me. And I really... We know that, don't we, Kim? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I really held on to that because I just thought, actually... And then the other bit of advice was where you can see if you can negotiate home working so that you can get the best of both worlds. And, you know, for most of my career, I've been incredibly lucky that that's exactly what I've been able to do. So when the girls were young, it was great to be able to pick them up from school a few times a week, do the whole bed bath time thing. And then I'd be up till the early hours of the morning working. But I didn't mind that because I had that flexibility and autonomy. So I guess what I never did was felt like I was coming back out of motherhood too. I just felt like it was one seamless thing and I've I don't know my life to be any different. I've always worked full time and I've had babies and in some ways the fact that they need me less now is quite interesting because I said to my youngest daughter the other day, do you look back and you think mum was around more? And she just sort of looked and went, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's not explore that any further right now. Thanks, love. But they feel very satisfied in terms of our relationship because when I was at home, I was at home. We were doing stuff and we've got loads of memories of all the different stuff that I did. Weekends were exclusively about us hanging out. I always recommend to other women as soon as you can get a cleaner so that you don't actually cleaning Saturdays and Sundays yeah, and actually you're you buying back time for your family. Don't see it as a privileged thing. See it as a must do thing and actually support other women in businesses. So in my life, I've had a female gardeners and female cleaners who are women friends that are starting out new businesses and I just see it as a way of sort of paying it forward let's look after other people that actually need flexible working Mm -hmm. time and buy back time for your family it's important you're inspiring I want to talk to you quickly about mental health first aid although I feel we could do a podcast in itself (laughs) on mental health first aid you know as you say you've been around for over 10 years as an organisation and it's only really recently the difference you know you are now training in a month yeah. what you would train in a year before yeah. to explain to anyone who's interested in it because we are actually at the Telegraph about to get mental health first aiders Brilliant. which I'm pleased about I think I'm going to go and do that training what is mental health first aid? So mental health first aid, it started in Australia mm-hmm. um, we're in 24 countries and globally we've trained 
just over three million people mm -hmm. as mental health first aiders. And anywhere you go in the world, the courses should do these things. So first of all, they'll teach you the language, you know, so what is psychosis? What is depression? What is anxiety? So actually demystify the mental health medical language. Mm -hmm. So that's one element of the course. But then we go into signs and symptoms of depression, you know, the physical signs, the emotional signs, the behavioral signs, what does it look like? How does it present itself? And then the most important part is two things. First of all, it's about when you do the course, you'll realize that there is no way that you can be a medic or a therapist. This is not about teaching you to be a clinician. It's not about retraining. No, no yeah, you, you yeah. can't do that in two days. What it's absolutely about is being able to notice change in other people. And sometimes it's understanding the complexity of change. We might automatically assume that actually when somebody's looking knackered and they're coming into work late and there's all these negative things, that that's a sign that we need to have a conversation with them, absolutely. But also the reverse is often... People that are suddenly very sprightly yeah. and manic and... Yeah, so the reverse, and I suppose it's understanding the complexity. So what we teach people is everybody's got the skills to recognise change and then everybody, the second bit, has got the skills to actually have a conversation. And the conversation starts with, how are you? I've noticed mm -hmm. these things and I'm just wondering what's going on in your world at the moment. And then to be able to follow that questioning process through. So we teach people five steps in every course around having a conversation. And listening is a key component of that. So we teach people how to listen non-judgmentally. We teach people how to give reassurance and also signpost. And that's another critical part, which is why it works so well within workplaces, is that workplaces, you can, can use that fifth step to signpost it into the services that they already right. provide. So... It's very much around that early support. And what we know is that the people that have been on the courses, their own well-being improves because what they do is start to apply it to themselves. Into themselves. Yeah. And so it's a beneficial for you as an individual. It's beneficial, extremely beneficial for you as a parent because I think with the issues around young people, and like I've said, I've got four children, you know, it's really important that we are alert and aware to mm -hmm. this conversation because more young people than ever before are experiencing anxiety mm -hmm. and you've had that on your podcasts as a subject matter through lots of different parents that have been it. So we need to be educated in this stuff as parents and friends and colleagues and peers. So that's what the Mental Health First Aid course is. It teaches you to re recognise early warning signs. It gives you more confidence to have a conversation and it gives you a framework to be able to support someone to the next step. And if someone listening would like to take one of those courses, how would they go about it? Go on our website, mentalhealthfirstaidengland.org, and there's loads of courses on there. Get in touch with us. Our info account is dealt with on a regular basis, so if you ask, you can find out. And that, even if you're not in England, they'll <clears throat> yeah. be able to redirect you to Scotland. Yeah. Or, yeah. Poppy, I like. I'm really so thrilled to have got you in and to have chatted to you I wish the podcast weren't like I wish we could do five hour podcasts <laughs> but I think that I might get told off by the telegraph and also you might want to go for a loo break or get home to your children I say this and I've said this again you know I say this to everyone that comes in and because it's true everyone has a fascinating story to yeah. tell 
And mental health is such a great leveller. You could be at a dinner or a party with a load of pompous asses, <laughs> and then you start talking about mental health and everyone suddenly goes to the same level. So you are the last episode of the second series of Mad World and honoured that you could be that guest. But what I'm learning is that just by asking that question, how are you really, and, yeah. and getting chatting... I could talk for hours with most people. Your story is really inspiring. Thank you. And I love your coat. You have an amazing coat. I'm going to take a picture of us together and yes. put it on my Instagram so that you can see. Because we had we had Frank Bruno on the other week and he had the most amazing suit. And everyone was like, what does his suit look like? Because you keep mentioning it on the podcast. I'm like, maybe for the next series, it'll be a video cast. But also, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. But also all the hard work you've done over the last 10 years. Well, since you got into the mental health yes world because it's all very well latecomers like me rocking up and going hello I have OCD and talking about it but there are people like you who have been working in the mental health world for years and years quietly when it wasn't something anyone was really talking about you know there was huge stigma attached to it in the early 21st century and it's only relatively recently that it has become something that people can talk about with ease and that's thanks to people like you Poppy. I think I'd like to thank you as well, actually, because I think what my generation have done is laid the foundation so that you guys can come and take it up a notch. At Poppy. And, and I can retire. You know you're 41. <laughs> I'm 30. I'll be 38 in a couple of months. I mean, we're basically contemporaries, but I do. I appreciate yeah, But you're not. As the new kid on the block, as you said, I just think that each generation, each one of us comes along, tells our story, puts it into the ground as the foundation for the next story to come along. And one day there'll be so many stories out there, this will become irrelevant. And that's where we need to go to. So you're building on what I've done and I'm building on what loads of people have done before me. And I think that's what we need to be doing. We need to keep building this mental health narrative so that it becomes a non-issue, so that you and I are sitting in 10 years' time with a cocktail, having a chat and going, wow. And someone listening right now is surely been inspired to be the next person to build on it. So thank you so much, thank Poppy. You. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will hopefully, fingers crossed, be back for a third season or series. Whee! I'm not American. A series <laughs> at some point. Thank you so much, Poppy. Thank and thank you. you, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Well, <laughs> If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 03001233393. That's 03001233393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808. 802-5544. That's 0808-802-5544. And remember this, you are not alone. 
Hi, I'm Emily Cronin. If you're enjoying this podcast from The Telegraph, why not try Fashion Unzipped? It's a show where we invite you into the conversations we have every day on the fashion desk. All the chat, none of the deadlines. Plus, you get to hear from designers. Whether it's glitter or leopard, we just can't get enough of it. Supermodels. There was only one girl every year that was a plus-size model that had her big moment. And then that's all you would see of those girls. And some of the brightest minds in fashion. His legacy is the epitome of style and chic. Subscribe to Fashion Unzipped by searching Fashion Unzipped on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.